In the first part of our program, we're going to talk about our eating and the American appetite in the food industry and strategies they have in overcoming the overeating epidemic with Dr. David Kessler. We'll go to him in just a moment. He is a former commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, having served under the presidencies of Bush 1 and Bill Clinton. And during his tenure at the FDA, Dr. Kessler was instrumental in fighting for regulation of the tobacco industry. He was trying to protect consumers about false label claims and required the standardization of nutritional facts on food, a commendable deed Later, he became the dean of Yale University's medical school and subsequently became dean of the University of California Medical School in San Francisco. He held the post until 2007. Dr. Kessler's medical specialty is pediatrics. He has a medical degree from Harvard and a law degree from the University of Chicago. He's taught on the faculties of Columbia and Albert Einstein Colleges of Medicine. Dr. Kessler's recent focus has been investigating the root causes of obesity. And let us all be aware that we are in the midst of an epidemic of obesity and overweight conditions, not only in adults, but also, unfortunately, in children. And how did we get here? What role does the food industry play in promoting to this national health crisis? Here's a recent book, The End of Overeating, Taking Control of the Insatiable American Appetite in which he details the means by which the food industry has hijacked the American public to consume more and more unhealthy foods. And I will go into a a brief commentary before we go to Dr. Kessler in a moment. Uh, By the way, Dr. Kessler, thank you very much for being in studio in New York. Thank you for having me. And I want to just share this because I'm of the belief that something shouldn't be important because of who it's done to, who is the victim. I remember several years ago, there was a mugging in Central Park around the reservoir where I run every day. And it was front page on all the major newspapers, in New York at least, for about two weeks. It was a white uh, person who worked on Wall Street. So I went up to the, um, and one of my friends worked in the city health department, and I said, how many Latino and African-American women have been mugged in the same period of time? And he just laughed. He said, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm not kidding. Could you find out from the hospitals, emergency rooms? It was over 100. I said, well, wouldn't it have made sense if you're going to promote the idea that someone can be mugged, that we not somehow focus that a person's race should be the point of interest? And... Likewise, we currently have 37.5 million Americans going to bed each day who have not had adequate nutritional intake. 12.7 million are children. This is not starvation. I'm not talking about what you would see in Biafra or the Sudan. I'm not trying to make that analysis. I am, however, saying that in a country that has so much wealth, that has people that are so generous of heart, we shouldn't have 37 million people going to bed hungry because they didn't eat enough. We should also, it is my belief, and I will hold by this, we shouldn't ever have to put a person in a position to say, should I take my diabetic medication or should I buy food because I may not be able to do both. You should be able to have your medicine and buy food and heat your home. That is more problematic today than ever before. I'm concerned about that as well. I think we could do better. And later I will ask Dr. Kessler his views on health insurance because I'm concerned not just for the 47 to 48 million Americans who have no health insurance, but also for those who have health insurance, but if they have an accident, they'll be declined coverage. Happened to a friend of mine just recently, fully covered until they went to the hospital and then they were told, oh, we're not going to cover that. And they thought it was part of their coverage. It wasn't. So what can we do to really reform this health care system in our country. I believe it's a legitimate discussion. I believe it's not being held, and I believe that we need to talk about it. So that's why I'm going to start off for a few moments sharing a commentary from commondreams.org by Nick Terse. And it was originally published on tomdispatch.com. It's called The Tsunami of Hunger. Is New York City About to Be Overwhelmed? Here's what it says. Quote, A crisis is brewing, and Carlos Rodriguez sees it in ever longer lines. He says, more work boots with plaster or paint on them. Guys clearly coming from the work site. 
A spokesperson for the Food Bank of New York City, Rodriguez has experienced tough times before, but nothing like this. It takes a lot of pride for a New York construction worker to stand on the soup kitchen line. That's something I never saw, even during 9-11, during that recession. Here on a quiet tree-lined section of 116th Street, Manhattan, it's possible to see the financial crisis that has the planet in its grip up close and personal. The new working poor, as well as more families with young children, are threatening to overwhelm New York City's last hunger safety net. And the hungry lining up on this street today may be only a harbinger of things to come. Behind them is an increasingly hard-pressed city. A potential tsunami of need threatens to swamp the entire system. The one million-plus needy New Yorkers of today could, according to those experienced in feeding the poor, explode into tomorrow three million hungry mouths with nowhere else to turn. Three million, and right in the heart of the country's financial capital. If this potential nightmare comes true, it will be played out in part behind the nondescript storefront of the food bank's community kitchen and food pantry on west of West Harlem, and the more than 1,000 allied food pantries, soup kitchens, senior centers, low-income daycare centers, shelters, and other partner programs spread across the city's five boroughs. In Harlem, in the late afternoon, the needy began to congregate beneath a green awning that reads, Food Change. Hungry New Yorkers without other options, men and women, young and old, black and white, Asian and Hispanic, a full spectrum of need. On a recent afternoon, I saw it firsthand. By 3 p.m., they were, they were beginning to be patiently gathering. By 4 p.m., the line already stretched the block and was just starting to wrap around the corner of 116th Street onto Frederick Douglass Boulevard. By 5 p.m., the tables in the community kitchen were already full. Yet the queue out on the street was still sizable. It's pretty typical, Rodriguez said to me. This is very representative of what we're seeing and hearing throughout our network. In 2007, even before the current financial meltdown hit, approximately 1.3 million New Yorkers depended upon soup kitchens and food pantries. Who would have known? A poll of the food bank in the late part of 2008, however, revealed something far more startling. One in four New Yorkers said they lacked savings to fall back on, and if they lost their jobs, would be in immediate need of food assistance. This is especially worrisome as a figure as the rate of job loss in the city has been quickening over the last year, with an ever-widening construction industry uh, gap between those who have jobs and those who don't. It's a weakening industry. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and while hard numbers aren't yet available, the food bank has already seen double-digit increases in needs since it took to that poll. High double digits at some food pantries and soup kitchens. Quote, that means two million people in New York City on the fringe of our network may need to access our services at one point or another. We're barely meeting demand for who we're serving now. What, we, what will we do with two million people? If they don't get back on their feet in time, they'll exhaust their savings and any alternatives. And they have to start accessing emergency food. It's a major concern. Rodriguez outlined this nightmarish scenario in remarkably calm and measured tones, perhaps in part because today there's little time or room for panic in the frenzied world of food bank uh, services. And a final thought. Most of the community kitchen's provisions come from a cavernous 90,000 square foot space located in the Hunts Point Cooperative Market, a 60-acre food distribution center in the South Bronx. Think of an airline hangar filled with food. And that's where they get their food. So I share this with you for this reason. Recently, Oprah Winfrey had a program where she sent her reporter out to San, uh, Sacramento to a tent city. And the tent city holds at any given time between 100 to 200 people. And when the reporter went around asking people how long they'd been there, what was their previous lifestyle like and standard of living, she was surprised to see that there were very few currently uh, middle-class unemployed there. These are people who had been there for an average of seven years. And suddenly, when all the camera crews came and they found out that these are long-term people, they left. 
And as one of them said to me, uh, I thought it was rather insensitive that they were interested in a story of being in a tent city if you had gone from the suburbs to the tents. But this man said, I am a former musician and a superintendent of a building. I've been unemployed. And because I had nowhere else to go, I'm here. But nobody cares. They don't know that we have to walk a mile and a half to go to the bathroom in a facility. There's no facilities. There's no running water. There's no community kitchen to prepare foods. There's no place to sit and actually have a meal. And he said, in spite of that, it is the people working together that have kept crime out, that have kept the drugs out. But unfortunately, now the city's going to close down their camp because it embarrassed them. And he said, so where do they expect us to go now? And I was thinking, isn't it amazing? We have right now in the United States 100 million people, according to the government statistics, that would qualify as being in the lower third of the American economic strata, the poor. We have 100 million who are right on the border. If they're two weeks without a job and an income, they're going to fall into that crevice. We need to help everyone, but we should never start off with the idea that that our crisis is starting today because if you're one of those people having to go 1.2 million New Yorkers every day to get food from a, a pantry, that means that you don't have food, that that's all you're going to eat that day, frequently one meal, or that if you are out of a job, you're going to be out there on that line. I just think that we need policies in place that show both compassion and restrict the political desire to in some way blame people for the predicament they're in. When people are in crisis, you don't stop and say, what's your politic before I put you in the ambulance? And if you disagree with the politic, you leave them. You help people. Those are my own personal views. But I wanted to bring that to your attention because everywhere this program is broadcast, I hear from people in this audience about their growing concern about how they went from a standard of living they can no longer maintain, but the safety nets are not there. And I don't believe that we're paying enough attention, enough of stimulus packages going to help the poor in our society. Again, those are my own personal opinions. Now to my guest. Thank you very much for coming in today, Dr. Hester. My pleasure. My first question. I believe from your work that you believe that the marriage between big food industry and the major advertising firms has succeeded in short-circuiting our body self-regulating mechanisms and have brought forth the psychology of eating that is desire and reward based. If that is the case, would you please explain to us and trace back this relationship between the food and advertising industries, coupled with our postmodern changes in lifestyle that are now more sedentary and that is contributing to our overweight and obesity crisis? You uh, phrased the question very well. Let me give you um, some data about our children. I'm a pediatrician. Children ages two and three compensate uh, when they eat. And let me explain compensation. If you give a child uh, at uh, age two or three uh, extra calories at one meal, you give them an excess amount of calories, say at lunch, they will eat less later on in the day. They will self-regulate how many calories they need. They eat when they're hungry. They stop when they're full. You give today, what you see is you give children sugar, fat, and salt, ages two, three, four, five. That, and you expose them to those kinds of diets. Um, they stop compensating. The, it's as if the reward mechanisms of the brain take over those homeostatic control mechanisms. So those children, if they have food available, and you talked about children who don't, and that's the other end uh, of the continuum, but if the children do have food available in the home and they've been eating sugar, fat, and salt, uh, that ability to compensate gets lost, uh, and they end up eating for reward. They end up eating for stimulation. They don't uh, eat uh, for nutrition. So we know that about our children. When I um, started uh, looking 
to write uh, this book. It originally started, I was at my, I was in my office at, when I was dean at Yale Medical School, and I asked the question, if you want to stay alive, what are the things you can do? And if you, if you want to prevent cardiovascular disease, cancer, any forms of cancer, and, and, and stroke, what are the things we know work? You spent your life um, thinking about those questions. But I wanted to understand where the science was. And it's interesting, uh, the librarian at Yale, I, um, I had her uh, pull the articles, and I noticed she ended up losing about 30 pounds uh, because you know, much of when you look at what you can do to prevent cardiovascular disease, stroke, diabetes, you come back to the question of weight. But for, I think, for decades, we really haven't understood what's going on. Just take a look at the number of cases of diabetes. Back a decade ago, there were 4.8 cases per 1,000. This is type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is really, you can write down type 2 diabetes or you can write down obesity. It's very synonymous. Type 2 diabetes is thought to result from an accumulation of fat and muscle, and that alters the glucose homeostasis in the blood. 4.8 cases back a decade ago. Today, that number has doubled from 4.8 cases to 9.1 cases per 1,000. You talk about health care in this country. Guess how much we spend on drugs for type 2 diabetes back just five years ago? About $7 billion. Today, we spend $13 billion, from 7 to 13. You talk about our health care bill. And what's at the root of uh, that diabetes? Um, and that, you know, the, the answer is, it's weight, it's obesity, but I wanted to understand what was going on. I, one night, um, I will admit, you know, I was thumbing, surfing through the channels, and there uh, was, uh, I was watching the Oprah show. There was a woman um, that was on, and her name was Sarah, very well-dressed, very well-educated, very successful in all aspects of her life, but she said, I eat when I'm. Uh, I eat when my husband leaves in the morning. I eat before he comes home at night. I eat when I'm happy. I eat when I'm sad, and I don't like myself. And I sat there, as a physician, and said to myself, "What's going on with this woman? Clinically, what do we know? Why is she doing things that she doesn't want to be doing? Did she?" You know, knows that she doesn't want to be doing what she's doing that, doing it anyway. What's driving this? And what's a scientific answer to that question? So it was that journey that I set out seven years ago to answer that question so I could explain to that woman, you know, and, and yes, there are extremes. There are, you know, a significant number of people, about two-thirds of us are either overweight or obese. There are others on the other end of the continuum. Now, there certainly is undernutrition, as you well articulated in this, in this country. But I wanted to explain you know, to that woman what's going on. And that's where I needed to go inside the science and needed to go inside the food industry. What did you discover? It was seven years, uh, a very interesting uh, journey. Um, let's go through the science first. We found out this woman, Sarah, is not alone. Uh, in fact, a significant number of individuals have what I call conditioned hypereating. Let me give you a definition. Let me give you the symptoms of conditioned hypereating. They include loss of control in the face of high, highly palatable foods. So a feeling, a perception that you lose control, you keep on eating. Uh, in the face of uh, highly palatable foods, a lack of satiation, a lack of feeling full, a lack of ability to have, feel like you should stop in the face of highly palatable foods, and a preoccupation, thinking about foods uh, between uh, meals. Those three characteristics. Now, some people, when I say those three characteristics, look at me and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
but they are a relatively small part of the population. For them, food just does not capture their interest. But for many people, it's interesting, I gave the book that I just wrote, you know, The End of Overeating, to one of my family docs, I mean, who takes care of my family, I handed him the book and he read it and he said to me, you're describing me. No one explained before what's going on with me. So in fact, this woman, this Sarah, is not alone. In fact, there are millions like her. If you extrapolate, and there's risks of extrapolation, you find that there's some 70 million people who have this condition, hyper-eating. Now, what do we know about this? It's not a disease, but it's a syndrome. It's a phenotype, this exhibited behavior, this inability, this perceived inability to control her eating. What we see now is that um, for people who have this conditioned hyper-eating, their brains get activated by highly salient stimuli, the reward pathways, both to the cue, but to the anticipatory phase. You know, the power of food comes not just from eating it, but from the ability to anticipate it. Every time I land back in uh, San Francisco, all of a sudden I start thinking about uh, just this little plane lands on the taxiway, these Chinese dumplings. Just plane lands. I'm on the runway. I get this in my brain. I'm starting to think about <laughs> Chinese dumplings. Why? Because there's this great food court in the airport. I had these Chinese dumplings. So just the plane lands, and that's a cue. I was walking down the street a little while back, and I started thinking about chocolate-covered pretzels. Well, why? I had been on that street um, six months earlier. I didn't even remember it, and I had bought chocolate-covered pretzels. We have the ability. Remember when we were in high school, we learned about Pavlov? Yes. That association of cues. So whether that street, whether it's smell, whether it's a, a visual cue. The power of food comes from those cues to anticipate the reward, to anticipate the, the, the food. You ever be eating, you know, and, and all of a sudden you're starting to think about what you're going to eat next? But you have food in front of you. It's, it's, you know, if you understand the neural circuitry, you understand that behavior. Because what you see in people who have conditioned hyper-eaters, and again, there are millions of, of these individuals, and they're not just obese, and they're just not overweight. Significant percent of healthy weight individuals also have this, is that their reward circuitry of their brain, their amygdala, is activated excessively activated to those cues, to that anticipation. But what's very interesting is their reward pathways, when they start consuming the food, stay also activated and don't shut off. So what happens if your reward pathway, the neural circuitry in your brain, stays activated and you're, and you're eating? You, you have this activation, um, uh, you have this stimulation, and you keep on eating. So this woman, it, it's not a matter of willpower. No one ever explained to her what was going on. In fact, her brain was being excessively stimulated. And what was it being stimulated by? Well, you know, if, if you go inside the food industry, you find that the industry probably doesn't know the neuroscience very well, but they know the inputs and they know the outputs. And they know if they take sugar, fat, salt, the three points of the compass, and they layer it and load it. Load it, mean they inject it into the food, or they um, get it, uh, the food, uh, to absorb it. And then they layer on fat on fat on fat. And pick any, you know, uh, know, go into any, you know, mid-American restaurant. Pick an appetizer that's being sold. Just pick one. An appetizer, it's sold. Uh, coleslaw. Coleslaw, right? And as an appetizer, well. go, go 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 into Fridays. <laughs> Let's, we need some help from your your engineers out here. Yeah, I'm not. You're not the one to ask, right? You go you go into a Fridays or an Applebee's, right? What's on the menu? 
What's America eating? Hot dogs, hamburgers, steaks. Buffalo wings, buffalo potato wings. skins, yeah. cheese, uh, spinach dips. I mean, what, take, take those buffalo wings. What is it? What's well, in that buffalo wing? It's a chicken wing. Which is the, 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 the chicken wing is the fattiest part of the chicken. Right. Then right. they batter it up. No, with they, 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 they batter it up, right? Salt, white, generally wheat flour, white flour. Right. And they fry it in the manufacturing plant. Yeah. Then they fry it again in the restaurant. Deep, saturated fat. Right. So they load it. Yeah. That increases loaded. the fat content by what? At least double. Right. And then good 30, 40 percent easily. Then that you put on this this tangy sauce. That's what's in the sauce? Sugar and what else is in it? Fructose and salt. So it's salt and sugar with some and fat, fat yeah. right? And then you have this creamy dressing, which is what? Uh, that's a uh, cream or artificial or straight cream with again sugar and salt. So it's fat, sugar, and salt, right? right? So what do you have in essence? You have fat on fat, on fat, on sugar on salt on fat, sugar, and salt. Right. Yeah. So you have this very highly stimulating food. And people like salty and crunchy, they like fat, and they like soft and sweet. The vanilla milkshake, let's just dissect it. We did an experiment on the vanilla milkshake. Not many scientific articles are titled Deconstructing the Vanilla Milkshake. <laughs> but what drives intake of that vanilla milkshake? Desire it, for sweet. Is it sugar? Is it fat? Is it flavor? What do you think is the driver of... I'd say first is flavor. First is flavor. Second is... Is sweetness. And third is... Mouthfeel or texture. Texture. So what you see, and certainly when you, when you do the laboratory animals, you, you see whether animals will work for something, whether they'll press the lever, right? Which you, you, you give them the food after the first press, and then you make them press twice, and then you make them press four times, and then you make them press uh, 16 times, and then you make them press 32 times. It's called variable ratios. They have to work harder and harder before they get the reward. So you want to see how, how much they will work. How much do they want the food? So if you look, if you look at sugar alone, fat alone, and uh, flavor, and you do the mixtures and see what, dry, what they'll work hardest for, Actually, it's sugar that's the main driver. Hmm. But if you add fat, right, fat and sugar is synergistic. So you work more for um, that those combinations. So fat and sugar, fat and salt, fat, sugar, and salt, each stimulate intake. We used to think we were eating for nutrition. We're eating for stimulation. And where does that stimulation occur? It occurs in the brain. What did the food industry say over decades? food industry said we're just giving consumers what they want what do we know that they're doing with all this fat on fat on sugar on fat these dishes that are layered and loaded they are um, excessively activating the brains of millions of Americans and when is it starting it's starting in children you're listening to dr. David Kessler former commissioner of the FDA former uh, dean of Yale University's medical school and former dean of University of California Medical School and author of an important new work on helping you understand about food and the end of overeating. It was a long time ago. It was in the mid-1970s. I was um, in Boston, and I was uh, speaking with a small group of women. There were about four women who formed a group. They had no medical background or scientific background. They were just concerned homemakers they didn't like what television was doing with the ads for children's food. And one of them made a very clear statement. Uh, she said, when I take my child to the supermarket, the child tells me what he wants. If I don't get it, he goes into temper tantrum. So finally, relent, you give it to him. And I've watched my son get overweight. I've watched my son become lethargic. I've watched my son's nose run and all kinds of things they didn't used to have. And I'm concerned. They formed a group which is, became a very well-known group, um, and their first idea was, are there people in the, the media who are going to be responsible for the ads that are run on television, involve, Saturday morning ads for when the, most of the children's ads were? And they found the answer was no. Uh, they were up against the whole idea of the First Amendment in this context, that we have a freedom of speech, and... and uh, uh, and yet, shouldn't there be also a freedom of choice involving that speech? Shouldn't you at least balance it in some way? 
And again, the answer was no. That came back to them. So they dug in a little deeper, and, and they tried to go around America and get some media interested, and most of the media was not interested. Uh, I happened to have been one of those media that was, so we had them on the show on a regular basis. Uh, they didn't have much success for a long time, for years, in fact. Why, I don't know, but most Americans just didn't think it was an issue. Then one day I decided to sit for the entire day and make note of how many ads were on television for children that either was something that clearly could promote health or in some way would add those calories you're talking about or junk uh, and all the sugars that, or salt that could harm a child over time, cumulative effects. It, it, there wasn't even... There wasn't even a single healthy food I saw mentioned. It was just one candy and sugar-coated cereal. So recently, I did it again, and nothing's changed. I was amazed. If you watch Saturday morning children's television. Now, frequently, the parents are not watching. The kids are. And then you wonder when you go into a supermarket and you see, you know, the, where they put many of the foods, they put it down where the kid, at eye level for the kid, where they can grab it. Will you take us through what you believe is the, is the role of adult diabetes in children, something we've never had as, a, as the, the numbers we have today, and the fact that we're not holding anybody accountable on any level, not the media, not the manufacturers, uh, not the advertising agencies, for contributing to the adverse health effects of these foods? Your thoughts, please. Type 2 diabetes is a result of obesity. When fat accumulates in the major muscle groups, it alters the uptake of glucose into that skeletal muscle. Insulin resistance develops. When insulin resistance develops, diabetes is not far away. It used to be uh, that the disease was primarily, almost only, seen in adults. Now with kids three, four, and five, having never been hungry in their life, excessive overeating, this conditioned hypereating, these brain circuits are getting laid down um, so that their brains are, in essence, sugar, fat, and salt is excessively activating their brains. You know, they are getting much bigger much fatter, much sooner. In fact, if you look at the curves, if you look at the changes of weight over since the 1960s, where, where we enter our adult years, the most striking thing, yes, the, you know, we continue to gain weight now as an adult. We used to, as an adult, say relatively stable until we became older and you know, in our 60s and 70s we used to drop off our weight. It's relatively stable. But you know, the, we, we still now gain weight till we're 40, 50, but what's striking when you look at those curves, what's very concerning is the weight at which you enter your 20s. You, you know, 20-year-olds are just demonstrably bigger than they were a decade ago, two decades ago, three decades ago, which means this is a condition that's starting in children and adolescents, and we're seeing much more type 2 diabetes. Now, you, you raise a question, which is a fair question. Um, what's the responsibility for the uh, food industry? What's the responsibility of the advertising industry? And no one's ever accused me of being soft. I mean, I'm, you know, I went after a big tobacco. Uh, so no one has ever accused me of not going after um, you know, the you know, big corporate entities. You know, but you, it's a fair question to ask. But the question also becomes, okay, our brains are being excessively activated. But what's our responsibility? What's the individual's responsibility in this? Uh, and I think that I think things have to change. I think up to now we didn't have the science. Back in the fifties, when we didn't, when the science emerged about smoking and cancer, what did the tobacco industry do? They decided to deny it, deceive the American public. Today we now know the food companies 
sh- or adding sugar, fat, and salt, layering and loading it, and excessively activating our brains, for, at least for millions of Americans. And that's getting them to consume more and more. Now that we know that, I, the question I have is, what's the role of the food industry now? What's the role of government? And what's the role of us as individuals? Because things have to change, as you make the case, things have to change because the incidence of diabetes, this adult onset diabetes is, I mean, this is the first generation of children who may not live as long as their parents. That's a tragedy. A child should, child should never die before their parents, and historically that was the, more often than not that was the case, but now this is getting, um, this is getting to where we must address it. So how do you do it? How do you do it when, you know, now that we know that the food we're eating, the food that's being manufactured, the food that's being advertised is excessively activating the brains of millions of Americans? What do you do? We can't, we can't get rid of it. It's not, you know, tobacco was easy. We can say you can live without tobacco. We were able to demonize tobacco. Can't do that with food. Food's important. Why not have the federal government require the industry that is using, the, taking the money from the food industry to set time aside and to also show the impact that food, the potential impact that food on people's bodies? So at least people have some freedom of knowledge, a freedom of choice. More disclosure. Yes, far more. Far more disclosure. People know what's in their food. Yes. People know the effect of what's in their food. Yes. Who's going to uh, take responsibility for that education? It will not be the industry. They won't do it. They're not going to do it. So who has to do it? Federal government has to do it, or state governments, or uh, organizations that are committed to this. What uh, what about uh, uh, food subsidies, federal uh, food subsidies? Who are we subsidizing? The poor. Is that who we're subsidizing? Mainly right now through food stamps. Right. What about... Uh, 37 million people are getting food stamps. What about crop subsidies? Those are the largest subsidies in the United States government, and food is $355 billion was the last package that was voted in last year. Those are mega... That's cardinal. That's, that's the big guys. So that's not the poor. No, that's the big guys. So how, how does that have to change? Well, the, first, I, I disagree with the kind of subsidies they're getting. Uh, because it, their subsidies do not allow better food. In fact, I would challenge that the disproportionate amount of foods we put into biofuels and how that has not helped reduce our reliance upon um, uh, a oil-based society instead, or even a coal-based society, but that's, that should be used in more biodiverse foods. And I, my thought was to have at least 20% of all subsidized major farms in biodiverse crops go to food pantries so that uh, the states and the counties and the cities could have ongoing basis of foods from farms in their area, therefore also lower carbon footprint. You grow it locally, you share it locally, also some of that. that would, if you're gonna get money from the government, if we the taxpayers are gonna pay you to grow food or frequently grow, pay you not to grow food, we should get something in return. Right now, we get nothing in return. What do you do about advertising, food advertising? I believe that there should be at least some individuals, some individuals who are ethicists. Uh, your universities have outstanding ethicists. Uh, University of California at Berkeley, I know one of the ethicists there. Um, someone who would be responsible from a non-aligned point of view to decide, is this advertising honest, and, and if not, what has to change in it? If I tell you um, you're going to like it, you're going to love it, if I make it something that's rewarding, you're going to do with your friends, I take the food and uh, create the emo- emotional gloss, that's what happens with food. Look at a food advertisement tonight on TV. So ever advertise the... Uh, Nutrition of the food? No. It's always no. about adding the emotional gloss. Yeah. It keeps it top of mind. You're going to love it. You'll like it. You're going to do it with your friends. You're going to feel good. Or we advertise about value. Should the industry be allowed to add that emotional gloss? Because when you have a reinforcing substance, sugar, fat, and salt, and you make it something that people want, it's only going to increase the reinforcing uh, value. We think we're immunized from those effects, but we're not. It 
positively uh, valences those reinforcing stimuli. So where do you draw the line? Do you allow that advertising? Well, uh, as an advocate of free speech, I must respect the fact that I may disagree with something someone's saying, but I will not interfere in the right to say it. I can challenge them on it after they've said it. But I also believe that if you're going to have it, a, a def, if you're going to add, if you're going to inspire, and I believe you were one of the ones who certainly were leading this charge at the FDA, that there must be truth in labeling. Right. Then why not extend that to the advertisers that before they can advertise it, there must be truth in it. Now, what happens if that advertisement becomes not just neutral information, that advertisement becomes a cue that activates the brain and stimulates further intake. Is that protected under the First Amendment? Not to you know, get into the legal issues, but we looked at advertisements as conveying information. That's what the First Amendment protects, certainly political speech and even commercial speech. Well, the First Amendment would protect you, as you know, as a jury, uh, as a lawyer, uh, of saying something. But if the consequence of what you said causes the injury of someone, you could have a right to say it, and you would be sued for the consequences of what you said if it hurts other if people. That advertising is, you know, adding to the reinforcement value of the sugar, fat, and salt, and driving consumption. How do you regulate it? I believe you bring a class action lawsuit to show that the effects of what you're talking about has been adverse to the well-being of an individual group and then hold them accountable to clean up their act. So, so what's interesting, because it's, it's a fascinating point, is if you look at the great public health successes, what are they? Tobacco, mm -hmm. seat belts. You look at really how do we, where do we save lives? What did we do? Certainly in tobacco. Is it because of regulation? Is it because of legislation? You know, I'm, I've worked for 15 years to regulate the tobacco industry. Maybe we'll get it this year, finally, through the United States Congress, and I think that's good. But is that really where the success was? How did we become successful with tobacco? When they, the seven heads of the uh, tobacco companies were found lying about their knowledge, their pre-knowledge of the addictive quality of tobacco. How did that help? I remember leaving... Because there was a $323 billion settlement that they were responsible is that, is that, for. Is that what drove the change? That, that, uh, then there was a law that they had to tell the truth and they had to set up and they had to pay Medicaid, reimburse Medicaid at the state level for the damages done. Let me suggest... But then their stock rebounded immediately. And what was interesting is the attorney generals reinvested in their stock as sin stocks. It was rather absurd in my opinion. The, the, the day I left FDA... Stock prices for tobacco increased. But let me challenge you. Let me push sure. you a little. Yeah. I think the great change in tobacco was not the lawsuits or the regulations. I think we didn't change the product either. The product is the same product. Right. What we changed was how we as a country view that product. You put a black box on it. Yeah. Is that how it changed? Sometimes you put a black box. But on I don't the think it, I don't think it stopped anyone who wanted to smoke from smoking. So, so that warning didn't do it. No. In fact, some kids, if you put the black box, you put the skull and bones. You only increase uh, right. the edginess, right? Yeah. What changed? What really changed in this country? Why can you and I go into a bar in this city, right, and not be uh, inundated with smoke, or a restaurant? There was proactivation at the local level. Those rules came from national grassroots. Exactly. We changed the perception. This was a product that for, certainly in our parents' generation, they grew up right, with a product that was, was reinforcing. It was very stimulating. It activated the brain. But it was a product that the industry advertised and created perceptions. This was associated with glamour, sexiness, the cowboy. It was something you wanted. It was something you needed. And we created that image. What did we do? We changed how we view the product. Now how do we view the product? Dirty, disgusting, unhealthy. That's the great public health success. We changed how we view this product. Right? That, if you're dealing with a reinforcing substance, if you look at this a product, this one product, and say, I want that, that's my friend, that's going to make me feel better, what are you going to do? You're going to go approach that stimulus. If you look at this other stimulus that's reinforcing and say, I, you know, that's not my friend. That's my enemy. That's a deadly, disgusting product. I don't want that. What are you going to do? You're going to avoid that. 
That was the great change on tobacco. Now with food, right? We need food. We can't demonize food. Food has mm-hmm. to be enjoyable. It has to be, you know, it has to taste good. Depriving ourselves, diets don't work. We know that. If you uh, take uh, somebody, and sure, you can lose weight. You you deprive them. 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, they lose weight. But they have the old same neural circuitry. You take it out of their environment, you change that for that period, you know, a short period of time, you can get them to lose the weight, but you put them back in their environment, they still have that old neural circuitry, they have that old learning, you start cueing them again, you bombard them with all the stimuli, and what do you expect to happen? Of course they're going to uh, gain uh, weight again. So deprivation doesn't work, right? But food you need, right? So tobacco was easy, right? We have this enormous epidemic. Yes, there's an issue of undernutrition in this country, and that deserves our attention. But we also have this incidence of diabetes and overnutrition that is causing a great deal of medical complication, and it's also causing people not to like themselves. I agree with that. What do you think of this? When you take a look at a child that is in your office with diabetes and possibly heart disease, and they're 12 years old, or they may have some inflammatory uh, disease as well, or they're sick, they're missing a lot of school, they're unhappy with themselves, I can assure you that no young girl looks in the mirror, sees a fat body, and loves themselves because of it. There's a lot of self-loathing, and that leads to all forms of radicalized diets and bulimia and anorexia. And it also leads to social isolation because we can be cruel at different times to people that don't uh, live up to some artificial image we have of the perfect body or the perfect face, whatever it might be. And no one is, in, no one is unaware of this, but we don't see their suffering. We don't see what it is to be that kid. I think that we should have more of the people who suffer and to be on television to share their stories as public service announcements just to show what it's like to be a kid because there's no one's going to relate to that better than that a kid out there in the audience. Yeah, that's me. Yeah, I know what it's like, to, you know, to, and we don't do that. We never see that a diabetic kid. There, there was an article in the New, uh, New York Daily News about a year and a half or two ago, and it really struck me because it was a full page and it showed how many soft drinks, caffeinated, sugar-loaded soft drinks, the average teenager that they queried drinks in a day. And it was a mind-boggling nearly 900 milligrams of caffeine per day and 26 teaspoons of sugar per day just from the colas. It was a whole big thing about, you know, and during the summer, that's when they're chug-a-lugging these big bottles. You know, they got these gigantic new bottles now. But there was no mention of what that sugar caffeine did in the body. It was just, you know, this whole phenomena. As a pediatrician, you know what those excess calories are going to do, and you also know what 900 milligrams of caffeine would do to a kid's brain. And yet, we don't show that. We show the kid happy, as you said, you know, jumping with joy and all their friends high-fiving them when they've had that, you know, cola or whatever it is. But we don't show what happens when they're sitting in your office or the dentist's office that's now going to be, you know, filling their cavities. Do you believe that by, or would you suggest that by examining what it is to be the victim of that and getting that story out, that that might change the image of what it is to be one of those kids and eat those foods? We have to be very careful with the word victim. It's very complicated. I don't profess to fully understand it. You also have to be very careful in how we um, deal with this, what's the right word, self-loathing. Very, very complicated, especially for kids. Uh, Very intense, very complex. I think the one thing that does work, when, whether you're a child or you're an adult, you come to understand that you are being manipulated. That people are, um, whether intentionally or not, driving your behavior. They're loading sugar, fat, and salt on top of sugar, fat, and salt on top of sugar, fat, and salt. And this trifecta is hijacking your brain. Let's get the information out. Let's explain to people what's going on. Because in the end, child, adolescent, or adult, once you have that information, that itself is probably 
It's certainly the place to start. Is Well, I'm hopeful that you're going to be successful in your campaign. I, I have felt that so many children in this country are so trusting. Uh, they don't question. Many times, depending upon how young they are, they don't have the intellectual capacity to uh, question. But I believe that most children are, are still innocent enough of mind to believe that adults are going to give them what they need. And uh, they wouldn't give them anything knowingly, given anything that could hurt them. The most successful campaign for tobacco with kids, adolescents, is called campaign, the Truth Campaign. The Truth Campaign told children and adolescents what is actually in cigarettes and how the companies were manipulating the level of nicotine to get them hooked. Because what do kids want? Kids want their independence. Yeah. They want their freedom. They don't want to be manipulated. And what we're seeing is much more complicated with food. There's, I want to be careful. There's similarities and there, there are differences between food and, and tobacco, certainly. We've got to be very, very careful uh, about that. But at least today we have the science. We understand how our brains are being hijacked. I think it's very important what you're doing, and I certainly support it. And uh, and I also support the fact that you're not afraid to go out there and take on these major manufacturers. And because when you take on one, you realize, like it or not, you're taking on a whole industry. Uh, because they don't uh, respond by ones. They respond by associations. So I'm sure that your book has been <laughs> read many times, and they're looking for strategies to get their doctors out on the airway to re rebut this. And uh, But any parent that has seen a healthy child become less healthy or unhealthy, and it doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen in front of their eyes. And then I, I know, having counseled a lot of adults, that they, uh, they feel guilty about it. And that awakening really makes a true believer out of them. They're not going to do that anymore. And then they become an advocate for change. There's one woman I re met recently at a film festival. She had a film there. It was called Two Angry Housewives. And they took it upon themselves, um, one's a physician and the other is, is a homemaker, just to go around the United States and go into schools and say, let's have a healthy lunch program. We'll make it interesting. We'll get locally grown stuff to reduce the um, uh, 1,500, 2,000 miles of food has to travel to your table. And they have gotten into a lot of schools following the old Alice Walker notion. She's really a, a hero to, and should be a hero to everybody. She's out there in uh, Berkeley. Uh, to, to make food more interesting, to make it healthy, to make it locally, to make it people wear the joy of food. And they're, they're succeeding slowly, but at least they're doing something. So we need to know that when you're doing something like this, when you're putting the word out in, in ways that I haven't heard anyone since Wortman from MIT. Remember his work? Absolutely. I mean, when he was saying his stuff, very few people were paying attention. Uh, now... Uh, he should be around because more people would pay attention. Let us hope that they pay attention to your work. I thank you very much for coming on the air today with us. Thank you so much. My guest, Dr. David Kessler, and he is the author of an important work that you should be reading called The End of Overeating.